Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Charting a New Course by Giles Clayson. From Denverite, I'll be reading Hear Tribal Storytelling, Eat Fry Bread, and Get COVID Boosted at the 47th Annual Denver Powwow This Weekend by Desiree Matherin. And What Happened to Bison Number 4 at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science by May Ortega, CPR News. From Westward, I'll be reading Trans Person Kicked Out of Club for Using Legal Restroom or Behaving Badly by Benjamin Newfield. And, This Colorado Visitor Was Frozen Out of Union Station. Why? by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Charting a New Course by Giles Clayson. Paul is a man who can't escape his past, even as he pushes to move forward and climb out of homelessness. I've got a lot of regrets, Paul said. You know, going back, looking back doesn't do you any good. You gotta keep keeping on, but it isn't easy when those regrets of your past keep getting in the way of any possible future. The mistakes that keep him trapped and without options are two felony convictions. These limit his opportunities to find a job and housing. Paul said the first strike against him was because of alcohol. He started drinking at a young age and his habit grew slowly, becoming a problem before he realized what was happening. He joined the army in 1984, right out of high school, and worked his way up the ranks. He joined the special force at the beginning of the Gulf War in 1990, and he didn't like what he saw in the United States once he was deployed. The United States runs around the world claiming to do good, but I saw it. I saw us imposing our will on other countries, Paul said. We're actually the terrorists of the world in a lot of ways. We're going around the world taking what we want and not caring about the costs on other people. By the time Paul returned to Fort Bragg in North Carolina, he was drinking more and he got a DUI. They took my security clearance right away. I had a top secret they pulled because they can't trust the drunk. I don't blame them for that, Paul said. He left the military because he felt his career in the army was over. Not long after, Paul and his wife split. They were fighting constantly, and Paul felt isolated, away from his family in Los Angeles. My wife and I were arguing so much, I just said, I'm taking off. I had to leave my wife, or things were going to get much, much worse, real bad for all of us. I didn't want my little children seeing that. Paul moved to Denver to live with his family. At this point, Paul believes he had become a full-blown alcoholic. He was arrested after an altercation for felony menacing and attempted assault. According to Paul, he threatened someone in an altercation to defend himself. He didn't touch or take a swing and walked away. But the threat was all that mattered. Those few words were seen as acts of violence by the court. He spent three years in jail and on parole. During that time, he gave up alcohol and tried to chart a new course. He said he didn't have any troubles during those three years, but the damage was done and he had two felonies on his record. Bam! They put a black cloud over me. 
I tried to find a decent job. I tried to pay my own way, Paul said. I wanted to work hard, but nobody would hire me after that. Nobody would give me a chance. I was living in a whole new world where every door was shut to me with those felony convictions. Paul said his new reality had little to no opportunities and ultimately condemned him to the streets. The felonies have prevented him from finding a job. No one would hire him. The felonies also have prevented him from finding housing. No one wanted to take a risk renting to a person who had been convicted of a violent crime. My only option is Section 8 in government support. When you take away someone's ability to get a job, there's no choice. The government has to pay to support them, to house them, and to feed them, Paul said. Paul would like to go back to work and create purpose for himself. He doesn't like the idle time of the streets. He doesn't like having frost-bitten toes in the winter and facing heat stroke in the summer. He would like a home with walls and a roof to replace his makeshift tent. But he is running out of hope. I'm healthy, Paul said. I'm 57 years old. I can work if someone would give me a chance and give me a job. But that felony, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be stuck here the rest of my life. The next two articles are from Denverite. Hear tribal storytelling, eat fry bread, and get COVID boosted at the 47th annual Denver Powwow this weekend by Desiree Matherin. Fry bread, dance competitions, tribal storytelling, and more await folks this weekend at the 47th annual Denver March Powwow. The event at the Denver Coliseum, 4600 Humboldt Street, starts Friday at 10 a.m. and ends Sunday. The powwow will also host a vaccine clinic offering initial shots and boosters as part of the We Can Do This COVID-19 public education campaign in partnership with Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. According to the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment, the clinic will be outside the venue all three days and will be available from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Folks can register in advance, but appointments aren't required. Bring your vaccination card if you have it, and know that if you're requesting a specific brand, there's no guarantee that you'll get one. May Malik, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Education Acting with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, said hosting the clinic at the powwow is a way to reach a community disproportionately affected by COVID due to significant underlying disparities in health, social and economic factors, and challenges in accessing quality health care. Malik added, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, the Navajo Nation and other tribes in the Southwest reported among the highest rates of infection in the entire United States. Now, the campaign is proud to simultaneously honor the cultural heritage of the Native community while also educating attendees about the importance of receiving the updated COVID vaccines as a way to protect yourself, your family, and your community from exposure to COVID. The current seven-day rate of positive tests, or positivity rate, is sitting at about 10.9%, according to DDPHE. DDPHE's data dashboard, last updated February 13th, shows that about 66.2% of people identifying as American Indian or non-Hispanic have had at least one COVID vaccine shot. About 11.7% have received the Omicron booster. DDPHE 
PHE says vaccine rates are slowly increasing and cases in the city are at a steady low, consistently classified in the low transmission category, according to the CDC over the last few weeks. The health agency added that its vaccine team has been focused on assisting those in shelters, particularly those experiencing homelessness and migrants. In the future, DDPHE said they'll begin booster outreach efforts towards communities with low rates. That outreach looks like more clinics and more education. Vaccination continues to be a high priority for DDPHE, especially in under-resourced populations, a DDPHE spokesperson said in an email. We continue to host vaccination clinics around the city in conjunction with the Public Health Institute at Denver Health, as well as through the DDPHE COVID-19 endemic team. What happened to bison number four at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science? By May Ortega, CPR News. There's a family of bison in Colorado that hasn't moved a muscle in over a century. They're housed in the archives of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and one of them is missing. Every single thing in the museum's collection, all 4.3 million pieces, has its own number. That includes these bison, cataloged as specimens 1, 2, 3, and 5. So how did these bison get these numbers? As the curator of vertebrate zoology, John Dimboski cares for this taxidermied herd, among many other specimens in the museum. These were part of a founding collection for the museum, Dimboski said. There were three founding collections here at the museum back in 1900. The museum has two floors full of dioramas on public view where you can see taxidermied animals from around the world. But these bison live three floors underground. When you step inside the floor where most zoology specimens live, you're greeted by all sorts of taxidermied birds suspended in flight, a snow leopard crouched on some snowy rocks, and a group of bison. The first bison you see is specimen number two. He's hard to miss because he's the largest, tallest taxidermied animal in the room, and that makes him a bit imposing, standing proudly on all fours, mounted on a slab with wheels. But even with those wheels, Dimboski said he's hard to move. Back in the day, taxidermy was a little different. This thing has a wooden frame, our understanding. It still has a skull in it, so that adds some weight. But it's extremely heavy, he said. We don't like to move it. We've moved it a couple of times, and it's scary. The other bison are smaller, or they're lying down, as if they're taking a little nap. This type of bison is native to the town of South Park, near Kenosha Pass, but it actually ceased to exist in Colorado in the 19th century. The state has a couple of other well-known bison herds. One lives off I-70 west of Evergreen, but they're not native. Those were actually seeded from a remnant population up in Yellowstone in like 1914, Domboski said. They were brought in from Wyoming. There's also a herd east of Denver at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge. Meanwhile, at the museum, there's a bit of a mystery. Where is bison number four? The museum was incorporated in 1900, but didn't have a building till 1908, Dimboski said. In that time, they went through and decided not to keep everything. So some of the material disappeared or was probably thrown out. And I don't have an explanation for where that is. 
but the rest of this small herd has found its place, along with a shelf full of whale baleen and a giant clam that may be radioactive. The following articles are from Westward. Trans person kicked out of club for using legal restroom or behaving badly by Benjamin Newfield. Just after midnight on February 26, Zadie James, who identifies as a feminine non-binary trans person and uses she-they pronouns, went into the women's bathroom at Milk Bar and wound up getting kicked out of the club at 1037 Broadway. I usually, in public scenarios, use the women's bathroom, especially if it's really busy, because I get a lot of harassment using the men's bathroom, says James. The long line for the women's bathroom stretched out the door. James remembers being near the front when a man yelled through the open doorway saying something along the lines of, Bro, you need to get out of the women's bathroom. James didn't realize the man was a staffer and at first ignored him. When it became clear who the man was, James tried to explain that people have a legal right to use whichever bathroom best aligns with their gender identity. But the staffer didn't listen, James says, even though some of the women in line were also arguing with him, insisting they weren't bothered by James's presence. Under Colorado law, individuals must be allowed to use whichever gender-segregated public restroom best aligns with their gender identity, although the state does not currently require businesses to provide gender-neutral restroom facilities. A bill proposed at the Colorado Legislature this session aims to change that for newly constructed public buildings. Milk Bar, which is loosely based on the club in the opening scene of A Clockwork Orange, sports a flamboyant industrial theme, hosts goth nights, and is frequented by the queer community. James had gone there many times over the years and says this was the first time they encountered a problem like this. On February 28th, James created a post on Instagram about the incident. By this week, it had gathered over 2,000 likes. Many commenters expressed support, while others claimed they had seen or experienced similar incidents at Milk Bar. Milk Bar responded by posting a statement on Instagram on March 11th. Since our inception, Milk Bar has been committed to providing a safe space for patrons and staff of all communities and identities, including all gender identities, sexual orientation, races, 21 plus ages, and beyond. While the post did not refer specifically to the incident involving James, it included this. Per milk policy in Colorado law, all patrons and staff have the right to use the restroom that aligns with their gender identity. In addition to our existing restrooms, we have gender-neutral restrooms that will be opening as part of an expanded space coming to milk soon. They don't actually address the situation that happened or mention it in any sort of way, James points out. To call it a statement is kind of silly. This particular instance involved circumstances that were not made public, responds Tully Bailey, the bar's manager. We have not yet publicly commented on it for the privacy of the customer and employee involved. But Milk Bar is commenting now. Bailey denies that an employee asked James to leave because they were in the restroom. Instead, he says James punched my employee and that was why they were actually asked to leave. That employee, Marquise Fields, is an African-American queer floor walker, Bailey adds. 
The narrative painted that it was this big bro Chad security guard isn't the case at all. It was Marquise, who was floor walking. He's an employee that is training to be a bar lead. Fields says he confronted James after some female patrons flagged him down to say they saw a man in the women's bathroom. Fields went over and observed someone with a beard and a beanie, so he asked James to exit the bathroom. James and Fields both acknowledged that James initially ignored Fields and instead headed into a stall. I did walk away from him in the bathroom after I told him I was in my full legal rights, says James. James did not initially say they identified as trans, but James and their friends quickly began calling Fields homophobic and verbally abusing him. After a while of them saying I was being homophobic, Fields recalls, that's when I said, I'm gay. I don't have anything against you. I'm not homophobic. Learning that James was trans, Fields adds, I said, okay, I understand, but I'm not going to have that conversation in front of everybody. I just need you to come chat with me right here. After James left the bathroom, Fields asked James and their friends to leave, citing disruptive behavior. But James believes he was kicking them out because of their gender. I gestured them to the door, the nearest exit, Fields recalls. I tapped their shirt and said, I need you to exit right here. James turned around and swung at me and hit me in the face. According to James, when he tried to pull me towards the exit, I tried to pull away. I did pull away, and there was an altercation in the hallway. We kind of flailed about. James said the only use of force was accidental and calls any assault accusation 100% a lie. Milk Bar, at its core, has been a longtime supporter of inclusion, everybody from all walks of life and everyone from the LGBTQ community, Bailey says. While Milk Bar has faced an onslaught of criticism on social media in response to James's post, he says that the club has not noticed any decrease in customers. James's cover fee was refunded through a friend. Bailey says he has since tried to reach out to James but is not connected. We would love to have an open dialogue with the customer that had the problem, he says. According to James, no one from Milk Bar has reached out, but they would be open to a conversation if the club is willing to apologize. If they contacted me, I would talk to them. Milk Bar does not intend to take legal action regarding the blow sustained by Fields. James, however, plans to file a discrimination claim with the Colorado Civil Rights Division and has pro bono representation through Tyrone Glover Law, a high-profile civil rights law firm. Helen O., one of the attorneys working on the case, says the firm wants to ensure that no other such incidents occur at Milk Bar. There should have never been a confrontation in the first place, she says, adding that Fields was not legally justified in asking James to leave the bathroom, making the subsequent confrontation irrelevant. Milk Bar violated the law when it demanded that Zadie leave the restroom and ejected them from the establishment based on their gender identity, says O. For Milk Bar to now claim that Zadie pushed or hit the bouncer while Milk Bar was illegally and forcibly removing them, reaffirms that Milk Bar knew that it was discriminatorily ejecting Zadie, and it is a ridiculous attempt to evade liability by blaming Zadie for Milk Bar's own illegal actions. According to Bailey, 
Milk Bar will host a training at the end of the month that addresses the incident and focuses on employee relations with the trans community and the LGBTQ community in general. But first, Denver communists are planning a Trans Day of Resistance at Civic Center Park today, March 17th. The protest will address an increasing amount of anti-trans rhetoric and legislation throughout the country, according to the group, which will then lead a protest down to Milk Bar at 8.30 p.m. The club is aware of the planned action, says Bailey. On March 15th, after the protest was announced, Milk Bar posted on Instagram that the club fully supports the trans and non-binary community as well as the right to protest. James plans to take advantage of that right tonight. This Colorado visitor was frozen out of Union Station. Why? By Katie Cheshire. The first week of March, 63-year-old Elizabeth Woods flew from western New York to Denver to ski. She'd planned her trip meticulously. She'd take the RTD A-Line train to Union Station, stay at Hostel Fish, and then take Bustang, the Colorado Department of Transportation's statewide bus service, to Glenwood Springs to ski at Sunlight Mountain. On the way back, she'd do the same in reverse. Unfortunately, her return trip didn't go as planned. There was something that happened at Loveland Pass, and the traffic on the highway was backed up, she recalls. Bustang was supposed to drop her off at Union Station at 10 p.m., giving her time to shower and change at the hostel before she took the train to the airport around 3.45 a.m. to catch her early flight. Because of the delay, though, she didn't get to Union Station until almost 2 a.m. The first train to the airport would leave at 3 a.m. Woods decided to just wait at Union Station for an hour. But there was a lady there to meet us, and she immediately corralled everybody, didn't ask a single question, and brought us up to this one door that was locked, Woods remembers. She unlocked the door and said, you need to leave, then locked it behind us, and at that point, you're literally on the platform. With nowhere else to go, Woods was stuck in the cold on the train platform, along with many people who clearly weren't travelers, all milling around in an effort to stay warm. She was soon approached by a man who appeared to be homeless and told her his name was Michael. He asked if she'd like him to teach her a trick for staying warm. Soon, another person approached and asked if she'd use her phone to look up a car rental for him. Woods did, but Michael got frustrated with the other man and walked away, then came back. Over the next hour, Woods saw several more altercations between people while she felt abandoned by station personnel. I've never been to a union station that's closed, she says. That's like an oxymoron. You're supposed to go to union station to make a connection. You're supposed to be able to wait in a heated room and be able to sit down on a bench and wait, but not in Denver. That's because they have a homelessness problem. I get it, but I don't think this is the solution. In fact, Woods says, befriending Michael was probably what kept her safe. If I'd been there by myself and he wasn't with me, who knows who would have approached me? According to both the Regional Transportation District, which oversees the bus concourse and light rail trains going to and from the station, and Sage Hospitality Group, which manages Union Station itself, both the station and the bus concourse behind the station are closed for cleaning for several hours every night. The Union Station building is closed for cleaning Monday through Saturday from 2 a.m. to 5.30 a.m., 
and Sunday from midnight to 5.30 a.m., while the bus concourse is closed from 12.30 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. daily. Our facility's maintenance supervisor confirmed that we have been installing signs on the doors that indicate we are closed during that time frame, says Tina Jacquez, public relations manager for RTD. We keep the station open during times when there is bus service coming in and out of the station from 4.30 a.m. to 12.30 a.m. But for a traveler coming into Denver, those closures might not be immediately clear. When you search Union Station on Google, it says it's open 24 hours. That is complete nonsense. They're not, Woods says. They're lying on their website. And that's one thing I really don't like. I'm not a liar myself, and so I don't tolerate it, particularly from Denver Union Station. According to Julie Dunn, a Union Station spokesperson, the correct hours are listed on Union Station's website. The building is open 24 hours for hotel guests and Amtrak customers, but not for other people, she says. While the Google result doesn't populate those details, Dunn says Union Station has asked for an update to the Google hours in order not to confuse visitors. As tens of thousands of people pass through Denver Union Station daily, a thorough cleaning is required nightly, Dunn notes, and we try to minimize the disruption to guests. Woods' trip was disrupted before she arrived at Union Station. According to CDOT, if a Bustang route can't be completed, the district will get hotel rooms for stranded travelers. But Woods' trip was completed, even if it took hours longer than anticipated. Generally, if a bus arrives at its destination, albeit late, the passengers are not provided with hotel accommodations, says Tamara Rollins, CDOT communications manager. However, our goal is always to provide excellent customer service, and together with our operators, we will evaluate extenuating circumstances and do what is appropriate for our customers. RTD has jurisdiction over the bus concourse, but no specific closure times for that facility were listed on its page for the facility until Westward pointed it out. The website has since been changed to reflect the closure for cleaning. Still, Woods says, her experiences at Union Station didn't match the hours on either website. When she'd first arrived in Denver and attempted to enter Union Station, a security guard told her the building didn't open until 6 a.m. Although the guard unlocked the door at 5.57, he still wouldn't let her enter for three more minutes. As Woods headed for the A-line after a cold hour on the platform, a conductor asked for a ticket, saying she couldn't board the train without one. I know I can buy a ticket on the train, and that is my intention, she says, she told him. I am not whipping out a wallet on this platform. If you don't like it, throw me off. She was allowed to enter and sit down, and she purchased a mobile ticket online. Although she understands that the Union Station area has security problems, she doesn't think the restrictive solutions are helping. We were met by a conductor, and four security guards were on the train, she says. My question is, why do you have four security guards on the train if there's no problem? And if there is a problem, why are you persecuting the elderly? Because you can't deal with your problem? RTD has been trying to deal with the problem for more than a year after issues with crime and drug use came to a head in December of 2021. In response to alarms from both the Drivers Union and Mayor Michael Hancock, the Denver Police Department took action, 
stepping up enforcement for drug offenses. The Union Station concourse bathrooms were closed while they were being renovated to provide more security. RTD removed benches and access to electrical outlets. The bathrooms are now reopened with rules posted outside, along with a security guard. Only two people are allowed in at once, and they must first be scanned by the security guard. Joel Fitzgerald, the new head of RTD's police force, wants to expand the number of district officers, and RTD is also examining making ongoing changes such as adding turnstiles, updating ticketing policies, and making upgrades to interior and exterior lighting. Additionally, our transit police are deployed throughout the district we serve and to the areas where they are needed the most, and that includes the Denver Union Station bus concourse and surrounding transit area, Jacques says. Woods wonders how all of these supposed safety improvements would do anything to help someone in her situation, stuck with no place to go in the middle of the night. Her situation was unusual, according to RTD, because no bus routes, including bus stangs, are scheduled to come in during the time the bus concourse is closed. Woods isn't planning to test that out. If she returns to Denver, she'll avoid Union Station. It just left a really bad taste in my mouth, she says. I wish we could solve our homelessness issue in the U.S. It's really, really sad. Park Hill Golf Course Developers Don't Want Lawsuit Depositions Public by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. With a vote that could decide the future of the Park Hill Golf Course coming up April 4th, the owners of the property are trying hard to ensure that the public can't see deposition transcripts connected to a lawsuit filed by the Sisters of Color United for Education. The golf course's ownership and proposed development of the Park Hill Golf Course have been the subject of substantial media coverage as well as hearings before the Denver City Council. Issues relating to the proposed development will be voted on by the Denver electorate in April of 2023, before the trial in this case. Plaintiff has issued press releases relating to this dispute. Lawyers representing Westside Investment Partners and the Holleran Group, the developers that own the property, wrote in a March 3rd court filing, seeking to limit pre-trial disclosure of the deposition testimony in this case outside this proceeding. The Sisters of Color United for Education, a previous tenant of the Park Hill Golf Course Clubhouse that ended up suing the developers after their rental relationship went sour, opposes the request to have the deposition transcripts sealed before the May 8th trial. This affected the community, so we do want the community to be able to have the information about why they currently don't have a home, says Adriana Corrales-Lujan, the executive director of the Sisters of Color, an organization that promotes health, wellness, and education in Denver. When people try to silence us, it really speaks to trying to uphold the status quo of what things have always been. The organization signed a lease for the clubhouse in February of 2021, but the group lasted less than a year in the space, as the nonprofit and the developers disagreed over contract terms. The Sisters of Color ultimately filed a lawsuit against Westside and Holleran last May. A hearing is set in Denver District Court at 12.30 p.m. today, March 16th, when Judge Martin Egelhoff is slated to rule on the request to seal the depositions. Westward recently reported on the contents of the July 31st deposition of Ty Hubbard, 
a former employee of the Holleran Group. In his deposition, Hubbard pointed out that Robert Smith, a Denver native who was also the richest black man in America, had contributed slightly over $8 million to the Park Hill Golf Course Development Project. This was the first public revelation that Smith was involved in the project, and his stake is substantial since Westside purchased the property for $24 million from the Clayton Trust in 2019. The Holleran Group joined the project in the fall of 2020. In his deposition, Hubbard also revealed that Westside recruited the Holleran Group to join the project as part of Westside's search for a real estate or development company that it was of color that could partner with them in some capacity. Northeast Park Hill has a large black community. According to court records, additional depositions are set for representatives of both Westside and Holleran. Attorneys for the developers are seeking to block testimony from these depositions from becoming public, too, until the trial takes place on May 8th. Asked for comment on the move, Westside offered this. As a matter of policy, neither Westside nor Holleran comment on matters that are in active litigation. In this case, and out of respect for the judicial process, we have requested a protective order to ensure that this case is litigated in a courtroom rather than in the court of public opinion. The April 4th vote on the Park Hill Golf Course, which is part of the same ballot that includes the race for Denver mayor and over a dozen other public offices, will determine whether a conservation easement that prevents development on the property can be lifted. Westside wants to build a mixed-use development on the property, which would include some affordable housing, land for a grocery store, and 100 acres of open space. There's significant support for this proposal, especially from people who desire to see investment in a historically marginalized neighborhood like Northeast Park Hill and more housing in Denver. But there's also vocal opposition from opponents of the development proposal, who want to see the land stay undeveloped and ideally have the city purchase the property and turn it into a municipal park. Remembering Pat Schroeder, she wrote the book on women in politics by Patricia Calhoun. I never knew a Denver without Pat Schroeder, who passed away March 13th at the age of 82. First elected to Congress in 1972, she revolutionized the role of women in politics in this country. We interviewed her many, many times. Here's a piece I wrote in 1998, right before the release of her book, 24 Years of Housework and the Place is Still a Mess, My Life in Politics, shortly after she left office. First, about that bunny suit business. 20 Easters ago, Pat Schroeder was touring China with fellow members of the U.S. House of Representatives Armed Services Committee with a bunny suit in her bag packed at the behest of Jimmy Carter's ambassador, who was hosting an Easter egg hunt. Schroeder arrived in full rabbit regalia. The kids mobbed her, and a week later she was mobbed again, this time by reporters who wanted to know why the congresswoman had hopped all over China dressed as a rabbit. The bunny suit was donated to the Denver Children's Museum. As to why Schroeder happened to own a bunny suit, well, you'll just have to read the book. I tried to set the record straight, but no one in the press would have it, Schroeder writes in 24 years of housework and the place is still a mess. Finally, I gave up. 
I issued a statement that Congress would be a better place if more members wore rabbit suits instead of power suits and kept their zippers shut. Although 24 years, a breezy account of Schroeder's political life, hits stores later this month, that's not why the 12-term congresswoman has books on the brain. Special Prosecutor Kenneth Starr recently served two Washington, D.C. bookstores with subpoenas demanding receipts for books bought by, bought by Monica Lewinsky. And that drives Schroeder nuts. We're not going to have any privacy, she says. What she reads isn't what she is. What Schroeder writes isn't the whole story either, but it's a quick refresher course in how far Congress had come before it got tangled in the current mess. Last Thursday, Schroeder attended a memorial for Bella Abzug, one of the few women in Congress when Schroeder was elected in 1972. At the service, as in the House 26 years ago, Schroeder's reception was somewhat frosty. Apparently, people had seen advanced copies of the book. She never hesitated to roll over people, Schroeder writes of Abzug. She didn't give a rat's ass who she offended for a righteous cause. The same could be said of Schroeder, of course. More telling was Schroeder's first encounter with Abzug. Rearing a family while being in Congress was unheard of, Schroeder writes. I'd never met Bella Abzug, the Democratic congresswoman from New York and America's premier feminist, so our first contact after my election was rather surprising. I hear you have little kids, she said. You won't be able to do this job. Abzug wasn't the first person to tell Schroeder that. Even members of the National Women's Political Caucus, which Schroeder helped to found, suggested she run for something like the school board rather than Congress. But Schroeder, whose first congressional district candidacy was as startling to her as it was to everyone else, decided to take a Donna Coyote run for it and beat Arch Decker in the primary. Decker later switched parties and challenged Schroeder as a Republican in 1978. Back then, the seat was no Democratic sinecure, however. In fact, it was occupied by a Republican, Mike McKivitt, who, as Denver's district attorney in 1970, had shut down the movie I Am Curious Yellow and closed restaurants that served hippies. But the government took Schroeder's candidacy seriously enough to have an FBI operative break into her house. Years later, she learned her husband's barber was a paid FBI informer. Schroeder won. That was the easy part, but she didn't know it. Then she entered Congress, a guy gulag. There were no female pages. Congressmen sunbathed nude. It was only because of Wilbur Mills, who would soon be caught frolicking in the title basin with stripper Fanny Fox, wanted to appease his wife, a Schroeder fan, that she got a seat on the prestigious Armed Services Committee. Half a seat, it turned out. Chairman F. Edward Hebert was so peeved by the appointment of Schroeder and California's Ron Dellums, a girl and a black, each worth only half of one regular member, Hebert said, that he made them share a chair. Ron and I had two choices, to go ballistic or to hang in, Schroeder writes. We decided to hang, so we sat cheek to cheek on one chair, trying to retain some dignity. The book swings past other highlights and lowlights of Schroeder's career. Tailhook, introducing the term Teflon to describe the presidency of Ronald Reagan, who never met with the Congressional Women's Caucus, although he sent Nancy to one lunch. 
and her response early on when someone asked her how she could be both a congresswoman and a mother. I have a brain and a uterus, and they both work. Schroeder has always been quick with a quip, which is one of the reasons why some people don't like her. Then there are other reasons, and other people. People like the Christian Coalition member who called her a witch, a snake, and a whore. Or Oliver North, who named her one of the country's 25 most dangerous people. I would have done so much better politically, Schroeder writes, if I had embraced the Second Amendment and forgotten about the First. But Schroeder did well enough. In 1987, after fellow Coloradan Gary Hart dropped his second presidential bid, I felt we'd all been let down by him, writes Schroeder, who chaired his campaign. She explored her own candidacy. A time poll ranked her third. Very exciting, Schroeder writes, but third doesn't cut it. So in September 1987, Schroeder scheduled a speech in downtown Denver. When she started explaining why she wouldn't run, the crowd groaned. My heart sank, and I began to cry, she writes. I had underestimated how much I wanted to pursue the presidency. I went on with my speech, but it was my tears, not my words, that got the headlines. Schroeder made headlines again two years ago, when she decided 12 terms were enough. She got out while the getting was good. I would be in a straitjacket if I were there, she says of today's Congress. Schroeder is now president and CEO of the Association of American Publishers, which is why she's got books on the brain, copyright issues, intellectual property issues, and legal issues, such as those raised by Lewinsky's reading lists. What are they going to do next? asks Schroeder. Go to Victoria's Secret to see if she wore underwear? Although Starr hasn't revealed what he's looking for, presumably he's not out to prove that Lewinsky has very pedestrian tastes. The triacle, the notebook, is reportedly among her choices, or even an oral fixation. Nicholas Baker's Vox, normally about phone sex, but really about the power of an author's hip reputation. Last week, a judge declined to quash the subpoenas, but also ruled that Starr can't see those records without first pr- proving a compelling need. That's a win for Schroeder's group, for now. Political pundits keep wondering where the feminists are on the Clinton scandals, but Schroeder's experience at the Abzug service shows exactly where. They're all over the map, just like everyone else. They don't speak with one voice. In fact, Schroeder doesn't speak much about this at all, despite hundreds of entreaties from reporters. When Schroeder last week tossed off one of those throwaway quips about whether Clinton's aides should have asked him if he was a sex addict, The media reported it totally distorted and out of context, she says. So today, when reporters and talk show hosts call, she doesn't always answer. But then she no longer has to answer to them, to us, remember? Still, after the Lewinsky saga went public in January, Schroeder added a hasty postscript. Reporters, TV producers, and friends from all over the country were asking the same question. What do you think? The truth is, I didn't know what to think. And then I realized I don't have the answer right now. Pure Schroeder, for once without a pat answer. City Park Jazz announces 2023 summer lineup by Westward staff. City Park Jazz has produced 10 concerts every summer since 1986. It's one of Denver's favorite musical events. 
The free series showcases some of the best local musicians in the city, all playing jazz, blues, salsa, and more in sprawling City Park. City Park Jazz has just released its 2023 lineup, which includes the fourth annual return of the Brass Band Extravaganza, and an evening highlighting various brass acts in Colorado. In addition to announcing this summer's series, City Park Jazz, a volunteer-run nonprofit, announced that it's looking for volunteers for the upcoming season. For details, visit the City Park Jazz website. The concerts run from 6 to 8 p.m. Sundays starting June 4th. Here's the lineup. June 4th, Sarah Mount and the Rushmores. June 11th, Stafford Hunter and Jazz Explorations. June 18th, Dot Cero. June 25th, Ritmo Jazz Latino. July 2nd, Wellington Bullings. July 9th, Chris Daniels and the Kings. July 16th, 4th Annual Brass Band Extravaganza with Gorilla Fanfare and Bourbon Brass Band. July 23rd, Otis Taylor. July 30th, The Burroughs. And August 6th, La Pompe Jazz. Three years after shutdown, My Brother's Bar is Back to Normal by Patricia Calhoun. On March 17, 2020, all restaurants and bars across Colorado were closed as Governor Jared Polis tried to clamp down on the expanding COVID pandemic. My Brother's Bar, the oldest watering hole in town, it opened as the Highland House in 1873 when Denver was just 15 years old, had gotten a jump on the executive order, shuttering at the end of service on March 14th. I was there that night to toast what everyone hoped would be a short hiatus before business returned to normal, maybe in a few weeks. Three years later, my brother's is finally returning to normal and bringing back its late-night hours. After opening at 11 a.m. today, March 17th, my brother's will open, remain open until 2 a.m., keeping that kitchen grill hot for all the industry workers who relied on this classic watering hole as their last stop of the night. It will keep the same hours tomorrow and then stay open until at least midnight on weeknights. We've been wanting to do it, but things weren't feeling right, says Danny Newman, who led his family's purchase on of My Brothers from the Caragas family in 2017. Over the past couple of months, things started feeling that they were going in the right direction. It's wild, insane, that it's been that long. When the Newmans bought My Brothers, they promised that things would not change. After all, Paula, Danny's mother, had been working there for 32 years, and he'd grown up in the place. My parents and I couldn't be more excited to carry on the tradition of Denver's oldest bar, Newman said at the time. When Jim Jim Caragas and his brother Angelo bought the bar back in 1970, 15th and Platt was not the greatest part of town. But they built an amazing restaurant, and over the years, the Highland neighborhood has exploded. More and more of the old buildings in town have been raised in the name of development. While it's good for the economy of our town, our old Denver buildings and character have been rapidly disappearing. Within many of these beautiful and historic buildings are long-established businesses that contribute to the local flavor and history of Denver. Businesses like My Brother's Bar, which served up plenty of flavor in those great greasy burgers. 
But the coronavirus was about to usher in a new unanticipated chapter. Even as some of the lockdown rules were eased in late May 2020, the interior of my brothers remained closed because social distancing was not possible in the old building. Newman entered into an inventive partnership with Restaurant Recovery to set up the patio and parking lot as an outdoor restaurant with seating inside bubbles, even bringing in porta potties. But the condiment caddies that were such a hallmark of service went into retirement, and Newman sent his parents home to keep them safe from catching the coronavirus. And when finally my brother's reopened its indoor area in June of 2021, the hours remained limited, with the bar closing at 10 p.m., if not earlier. The place was dead by 9 or 10, and we thought that was just how things were going to be, Newman recalls. It changed over the last month. People want to go out again. And my brother's is ready, except on Sundays. Even before the pandemic, the bar was closed on Sundays, although last year Newman experimented with opening the bar on days when the Denver Broncos were playing at home. That trial is over now. Newman isn't sure if he'll bring it back. But at the end of the month, there will be a private Sunday celebration at My Brothers, a circus-themed first birthday party for Nico, the son of Newman and wife business partner Christy Kruchik, will be held where those bubbles once stood. At least once a day, someone is calling to ask about sitting in the bubbles, says Newman, who notes that they're in storage in anticipation of a next version expansion. There was another birth during the pandemic, an awesome upside of this thing, Newman acknowledges. A tech whiz, he sold a company shortly before the family purchased My Brother's Bar, which has never had a reservation system. So during those slow days, Newman hacked together this little phone system that ended up being really useful for us, he says. It grew into Switchboard, a customizable reservation system that has been picked up by Snooze, Illegal Pete's, and Garden Grace, among other eateries. The system preemptively answers common questions and also can connect to a person, he notes. The most common question for Snooze, how long is the wait? The most common question for my brother's bar, what are your hours? Are you open late? My brother's is now. I was not expecting it to come together, Newman admits. I am so excited that we're able to do it. Things are hopefully going back to quote-unquote normal, or as close as things come to normal these days. His parents are back, working three nights each. He overlaps on two with each of them. The popcorn machine will return to full operation. It's funny that we turned it off and forgot about it, Newman admits. But Bob Vigil, the man who maintained and fixed the condiment caddies, passed away last year. And, as at all restaurants, staffing is an issue and food prices have become so volatile. Burger prices went up 30% last summer that my brothers finally covered up the prices on those menus painted on the wall. It was impossible to keep up. My brother's bar has seen a lot over the years, from Denver's many boom and busts to the pandemic of 1918 and the pandemic of 2020. And now it's ready to celebrate 150 years. All of the amazing stories of coming down to Brothers to end the night, Newman says. Brothers is back. Englewood Grand Owners open a new, nameless bar in Asbury Provisions Space by Molly Martin. We're not naming this one. It's just for the neighborhood. 
Whatever people want to call it, whatever they want to tell their friends, says Phil Zierke of his new bar at 2043 South University Boulevard. In 2016, Zierke, who has over two decades of bartending experience at spots like the Candlelight Tavern and the Horseshoe Lounge, opened Inglewood Grand with his wife, Erica, at 3435 South Broadway. That establishment quickly became a neighborhood mainstay and earned a spot on our list of the 100 bars we can't live without. But while Phil Zierke has spent a lot of hours behind the bar at the Grand, he says he now has an amazing staff in place that's freed up a lot of his time. So last summer, when he heard that the eight-year-old Asbury Provisions had closed, he reached out to see if he could help. Ultimately, the Zierkes ended up taking over the spot, and while Zierke says that it's still a work in progress, this bar with no name and no set menu officially served its first customers on March 11th. So far, the bar has a beer list with 14 options and a few wines by the glass. Beyond that, Zierke, who's currently working at the place solo seven days a week, can mix up almost every cocktail. I have about 75% of the stuff I want, he says. While Asbury Provisions was known as much for its food offerings as its drinks, Zierke is planning to go a much simpler route. The kitchen at Asbury Provisions was an ambitious, awesome kitchen. Coming out of COVID, you get to the other side and you're like, this is going to be awesome. Then you just get crushed with inflation, the labor shortage, on all of that stuff. It's just a lot. I would love to do an awesome kitchen here, but I have a family, he explains. Instead of a full food menu, Zirki will offer charcuterie options, salads, and one major crowd pleaser, all-you-can-eat spaghetti. Something two people can crush, with one person making drinks and one person making food, he notes. Mostly, though, he just wants this new venture to be a place to chill and have someone taking care of you, he says. While this neighborhood around the University of Denver has several bars, most of them, like the Pioneer and the Illegal Pete's, cater to DU students, and while the stools at the Stadium Inn are often filled by old-timers during the day, a rowdier, younger crowd grabs them at night. This unnamed addition is more laid-back, middle ground. It's a simple spot to get a drink and maybe run into a few old, or new, friends, which is exactly what happened when I stopped by to chat, bumping into a Trash Hawk Tavern regular I'd met a few months ago at that neighborhood watering hole on South Broadway. Now, the DU neighborhood has a new neighborhood bar to call its own, even if it doesn't know what to call it. It was so good to have Asbury here for the neighborhood, says Zierke. It's so important to have neighborhood bars, and I don't think people realize that. It's important for all sorts of gatherings, happy moments, sad moments, all those sorts of things. When neighborhoods don't have that, they're missing something. And people might not be able to put their finger on it, But once a neighborhood bar comes, it's like, that's it. Every neighborhood in Denver should have them. Inglewood Grand's second location is located at 2043 South University Boulevard and is now open from 3 p.m. to at least midnight daily. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.